in my third year of uni, so I studied at the University of Bath and they offer a placement year. Um, and I was super lucky to get a placement in Tasmania in Australia, which to be honest, I didn't even know where it was. I knew it was, knew it was this side of the world, but I didn't even know it was like a little island off the south of Australia. Um, and yeah, so I took that placement and I did a year um, work experience there at the Institute of Sport and I just fell in love with Australia. And I went back to finish my studies, did my masters, um, got some jobs in swimming there. And then, so I was working in Wales as a performance scientist at the time and this PhD got advertised in Brisbane and it looked pretty cool. It was applied, so it was, um, I guess, not based at a university, more based like in the applied world at the QAS, um, working with athletes and doing a PhD alongside that. So it was like, that was perfect. Cause at the time I was, I was working as a performance scientist. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpri. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpri's all new, all natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is her PhD, specializing in pacing and swimming. She's a performance scientist in swimming physiology at the Queensland Academy of Sport and also an amateur triathlete, so I'm sure we're going to get along just well. Welcome to the show, Katie McGibbon. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Thanks for working out the time difference for me. I always love doing these like, like cross world time, you know, because it's basically dinner time for me, and you're just getting up to start in the day. So I always appreciate when we can figure out how to make that work. Yeah, definitely. It's always a tricky thing, like trying to talk to people back home as well, figuring out what time it is back there, and yeah, it's tricky. I think I think I re- are you from the UK? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you? Anytime somebody basically shifts continents, and because of the people I talk to, it happens more frequently, I think, in the people I talk to than the general population. I'm always curious how you make the jump, why you make the jump from growing up in one place to moving basically across the planet. Yeah, so I will side in my third year of uni, so I studied at the University of Bath, and they offer a placement year, um, and I was super lucky to get a placement in Tasmania in Australia which to be honest, I didn't even know where it was. I knew it was, knew it was this side of the world, but I didn't even know it was like a little island off the south of Australia. Um, and yeah, so I took that placement and I did a year um, work experience there at the Institute of Sport and I just fell in love with Australia. And I went back to finish my studies, did my masters, um, got some jobs in swimming there. And then, so I was working in Wales as a performance scientist at the time and this PhD got advertised in Brisbane and it looked pretty cool. It was applied, so it was, um, I guess, not based at a university, more based like in the applied world at the QAS, um, working with athletes and doing a PhD alongside that. So it was like, that was perfect. Cause at the time I was, I was working as a performance scientist with like the elite Welsh swimmers. And so I didn't want to just go and do the academic stuff, but I kind of knew I kind of wanted to do a PhD, but I wasn't super set on it. Um, the opportunity came up and I think it was, was just before Rio Olympics um, when I applied for it and yeah I put an application I thought oh who knows like I'm not really too fast either way and then 
I took about three months to hear back from them. And I thought, oh, well, I must not have got it because it had been ages. And then I got this random email pop up being like, oh, I'd like to give you an interview for this PhD. And it was because Rio was happening. Everyone was obviously super busy and they didn't get around to it. And yeah, I was lucky enough to get it, get offered it. And I thought I can either stay here in my job with Wales, which I really enjoyed. It's not like I wanted to leave that job or I can take up this opportunity and go live in Brisbane, which I'd never even been to Brisbane before. I just knew I loved Australia. Um, and I thought, why not? So I just took, took the opportunity and just moved over. I think it was January 2017 and yeah, I've stayed here ever since. So it's um, been a good move for me. But yeah, I do miss home sometimes, but I think the lifestyle over here is just much better. And that's purely because of the weather. See, and I've not been to Australia yet, but I know from a lady, a former pro triathlete, um, that she used to do the whole circuit. Basically, in the North American winter, she'd go to Australia and race the short stuff and then do the traditional triathlete or triathlon season over North American summer. Um, and... You know, she talks about how it's, I, I don't know, what quite call it Mecca, but I mean, you know, close to that in that there's such a supportive environment for, you know, triathlon and swimming in particular. She came from a swimming background. Um, so I would think, given what you do, that if it's not the best place, it's certainly probably one of the best places for you to be to do what you do, right? Yeah, I mean, sport is just a massive part of the culture here. Like, everyone loves it. Um, and especially swimming. Like, people grow up swimming here, I guess, because everyone lives by the ocean. They all sort of learn to swim for safety more than anything. Right. Um, and so you have to be able to learn how to – you have to be able to swim and you have to, like, be able to swim in the sea. And the kids just growing up here, they do, like, surf lifesaving. And mm. it's just – yeah, it's so different to home. And obviously, because at home, you know, people don't really go to the beach, it's too cold. So, um, yeah, it's just so different here. And triathlon is massive here. And I'd never done a triathlon before I moved over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought it was just the perfect opportunity because the weather's prime for it. Um, and, yeah, it's, like I said, it's just such a big part of the culture. Everyone just gets behind it. And the atmosphere at the events is just awesome. I love it. Yeah. So did you did you grow up swimming? Is that how you ended up studying it? Or, or like, how's the avenue into that? Yeah, it was a bit of a random thing, to be honest. I never grew up swimming. Okay. Um, I learned to swim, but, like, after, I don't know how old it was, maybe 10, 11, 12, when you, like, go through um, learning to swim, I didn't swim after that. Um, I always enjoyed it, but, yeah, definitely never competitively. Um, then when I finished my master's, I was sort of applying for loads of sports science jobs, um, and the first one I managed to get was one in swimming um, up in Scotland. So I moved up there and just... Yeah, kind of fell in love with the sport, I guess. And it's perfect for physiologists because it's very physiology based. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. And then since then, I've just kind of stuck with it. But yeah, definitely not from a swimming background. So I certainly struggled when I first started in the job, like understanding the terminology and mm-hmm. like the mindset of the coaches and the swimmers because it's not a background that it's not a sport that I grew up doing. So it was, I think it was good and bad in that I had to learn the sport from fresh, which I think is fine. You can do as a, as a physiologist starting a new job. But um, I also brought in, I didn't have any preconceptions about what swimming was or what it was meant to be like because I had no idea. So I kind of, I guess, brought a different perspective and sort of asked questions that people that probably know about swimming wouldn't ask, which can be good. It can be thought-provoking for the coaches sometimes because, oh, I'd never thought of it like that. So, yeah, it definitely has its pros and cons. But, yeah, I just fell in love with it. And now, six and a half years later, I'm still working in swimming. So, 
Yeah, I can definitely see that, like, that outsider's perspective where, you know, you know, I think about things from a running standpoint, which is not very useful in the water, but, but you know, you there is a certain culture when you grow up, you know, at least in the U.S., there's club for swim and, and a whole culture around that, the certain way you think about things, certain things you do, mantras that get drilled into kids, and it's like you have the opportunity to ask questions maybe they're not thinking about because they're so focused on this is just this is just how it's done you know that old we've always done it this way so we'll just continue doing it this way and then you go well why definitely <laughs> that's that that's why it's yeah it's super interesting like the coach is just it is the way it is because it's tradition a lot of the time in swimming yeah. I find and I guess it's the same in other sports yeah. just this is the way it's been done like you say and so yeah it was interesting like I'd come from a team sport background I grew up playing basketball Mm-hmm. Um, which is obviously very different to uh, swimming. So, yeah, it was interesting, like, conversion, I suppose, for me. Um, but I guess you learn the sport pretty quickly when you're in every day and you just ask questions and, yeah. Yeah, the, it, I, I love how you kind of just fell into it. When I spoke with um, he's a professor of, I think, exercise physiology at UC Davis, Dr. Keith Barr, this is back in episode 31 32 somewhere around there he made the remark that a lot of people come to exercise physiology and the kind of the surrounding disciplines because they want to know why they weren't a good enough whatever kind of athlete whereas like you just kind of fell into it so it's it's just interesting how people end up where they are so it's kind of neat that, that you're doing that instead of just being like I love basketball, so let's let's, let's focus on basketball. I guess yeah. maybe why didn't you go <laughs> and try to do more stuff with basketball? Yeah, I guess when you're applying for jobs, right, you come out of a master's degree and, um, you know, there's not a job waiting for you. So there's so many graduates, say, in the UK, for example, with an exercise physiology master's. So um, I was lucky that I had a lot of, like, applied experience that I'd gotten along the way, but you kind of, you don't get to choose what sport you work in. You have to apply for whatever jobs are available and you take basically what you get. Um, so I was open, you've got, I think you've got to be open to working in any sport um, and you can apply your knowledge, your sports science knowledge, physiology knowledge to any sport in just a different way. Um, and so, yeah, it would have been cool to work in basketball, but I honestly would, would have taken um, any sport. And along the way, it just so happens that I like swimming and I stayed in swimming, but I know a lot of people that have, you know, started in one sport and then they just move to another sport and then move to another sport. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a good challenge to be able to apply your skills to different sports. And, you know, when I started in Scotland, I was also working in judo, not just mm-hmm. swimming. Um, and that was another really interesting one because I had no idea about judo at mm-hmm. all. Um, never been involved in any sort of combat sports like that. So that was very new to me. And, you know, with all the moves, the name of the moves are in Japanese and trying mm-hmm. to learn how to do that and, I ended up doing the performance analysis for the judo team in Scotland and I was like, I was the only person doing it and I fresh like into judo. And so it was a pretty quick learning curve, but I think it's a good challenge to like, yeah, be involved in other sports. Yeah. So you were, you're saying your PhD is more applied than it is academic. Um, I assume you're still having to do some kind of like research project as part of the degree right 
Yeah, so for the PhD, I think I ended up with five different studies Okay. Um, in my thesis. And yeah, so they're, I mean, they've got to tick academic boxes, right? So you've got to, right. you know, write, write and publish papers. Um, but I guess the nature of those papers have been quite applied compared to, you know, we don't do lab testing for swimming purely right. because we just can't. So it tends to be, you know, it's more out in the field, it's at the pool. So you have to be able to do stuff that you can actually do in the real world by the nature of the fact that you have to do it at the pool and you're not in a laboratory where everything's controlled, you can't control the conditions in a pool, right. um, especially when it comes to pacing, like how, how do you control pacing in the pool because, you know, it's challenging, whereas in the lab, you know, you can set the treadmill to a certain pace, you can set the bike to a certain wattage, whereas you, you can't do that in swimming. So I think by the nature of most people that do research in swimming, it kind of ends up being quite applied. Mm -hmm. But I always say it wasn't a super sciencey. PhD or science heavy in that it was obviously based on science but we didn't take lots of like really complex physiological measures or anything like that we kept it pretty simple because we wanted the the findings to be applicable to coaches so that coaches can actually um, use the information we're giving them day to day in their coaching environments so it's much more like of an applied coaching type thing rather than yeah I guess academic but I mean it obviously has to hit the academic things to pass for a PhD so right so, I mean, are you trying to control any kind of variables like, I don't even know, you know, water temperature, humidity in the air? I'm assuming you're some of this, like, I guess I don't know. Are you indoor or outdoor with the pool? Are you, you know, if you're indoor, are you trying to control for humidity, air temperature, salinity of the pool, you know, any of that kind of stuff? Or is it just like, hey, let's look and see like what they're doing? Yeah, to be honest, so the two studies actually did in the pool. One was in an indoor pool, one was in an outdoor pool. And they were looking at slightly different things. But so, for example, the indoor pool, we did the testing in the same indoor pool each time. So okay. the, the conditions are kept pretty similar, like the pool maintained the water temperature at a certain temperature. Right. Um, but to be honest, we didn't really look at any of that. We weren't too bothered because those conditions are fairly stable, like in an indoor pool. Um, the outdoor pool, a bit more tricky. Um we did a uh, study down the Gold Coast and it was winter here, so it was um, pretty cold. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, there's only a certain amount of things you can control. And that was, it was a very much a, like a training session study. So we gave them a training session to do and we monitored how they went. So, yeah, we couldn't really control for much of that stuff. Um, and you're limited by things also like pool space. And so when you're doing a study, you're not the only people in the pool. The other people in the squad are also in the pool. Mm -hmm. So you can't just do what you want to do. So, for example, we wanted to um, cover the pace clocks so they couldn't see the pace clocks. But if we did that, everyone else training in the pool couldn't see the pace clocks. So yeah. we were limited, like we couldn't do that. So we had to just tell them not to look at it. Um, so, you know, we're relying on their honesty that they didn't look at it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's very, it's not, I suppose, compared to a lot of scientific studies, um, super controlled, but as the best we could we tried to do you know like doing sessions on the same day at the same time every week and that sort of thing but um yeah it's, it's tricky in swimming for sure so if you can imagine uh, it, so let's pretend you have an unlimited amount of money if is it possible to devise any kind of setup where you'd be able to take more like lab specific measurements of, sw of swimmers. If you could build anything, is it, is it possible to make that kind of setup? Yeah, definitely. And we do have, so say the QAS has a testing pool. 
Okay. Um, a 25 meter testing pool where you know we do our underwater camera filming and our um, Kistler blocks and stuff like that mm -hmm. and the AIS has a pool similar so in an ideal world I'd have a 50 meter indoor pool with um, underwater pacing lights actually built into the pool okay so they're actually not touching water so obviously now with all the pools that are already built you can't just well you'd have to take all the water out you'd have to then build the pacing lights in like mm. it'd just be a nightmare um, but yeah, if we were starting from fresh, that would be one thing I would definitely do. Um, because it's hard to, you're trying to control pace or what speed they're swimming at. And it, obviously in swimming, it's very subjective and you don't know if they're, they don't know if they're going the right pace until they come in and the, and the uh, coach goes, oh, that was a 105. And they go, oh, I was meant to be going a 110 or whatever it was. Yeah. So, and then when you're doing, um, kind of research you need to be able to control the pace that's where the things like the underwater lights would be perfect and then yeah things like the Kistler blocks and all those like fixed underwater cameras so the AIS for example has cameras that are fixed underwater and they're all calibrated so you don't have to actually every time you use them you don't have to put them in and calibrate them because they're already mm -hmm. there so that kind of stuff where you have fixed cameras fixed underwater pacing lights um, would be perfect and there are places that have bits of that but there's not I guess one place in Australia that I know of that has probably everything that we'd want, mm -hmm. but we've got a pretty good setup with AIS and the QIS here compared to, I know a lot of people don't have access to that sort of stuff. So we're pretty lucky yeah. here. Yeah. Well, it's like pools can be expensive to maintain. So if you don't have a very specific purpose or a large source of funding, then like you're definitely not going to get all the nice gadgets that go along with everything. And as you yeah. said, you know, once the thing's built, then it becomes kind of cost prohibitive to go back and try to re-engineer it over again over time to do you know insert whatever kind of gadgetry you want into it um yeah so tell me a little bit about specifically what you were working on with some of those research projects yeah um so i guess we'll i guess we're talking about pacing lights so we'll start with that one um we use so there's a few systems now that do underwater pacing lights probably seen them on twitter and um, there's a few different companies, but um, we wanted to see, because a lot of studies use pacing lights to control pacing in swimming, but we don't know, there's not often reported how accurately they can, they're able to follow the lights. Mm -hmm. um, so we did a really simple study comparing um, pacing lights to a metronome, so the tempo trainer um, and self-pacing to see, um, so we gave them target times and there was just like aerobic paces. We did one session was aerobic paces and then, um, the next session we did a bit more high speed. It was like just um, a bit slower than race pace, 200 race pace for them, mm -hmm. um, to see which they could pace most accurately to their target time with. Um, so that was pretty cool. And the, the pacing lights were definitely pacing was most accurate with those, mm -hmm. um, self pacing, you know, especially at the slower paces, some of them were way off. They yeah. go way too fast, and and I guess coaches would see that all the time that they go much faster than they they need to go, um, which you know can affect their performance in the next session if they've actually swum like say a session that should be aerobic at threshold, and the next session they're doing speed. Well, they're not going to do very well if they've swum the whole previous session at threshold when it's not right. meant to be. Um, so that was kind of the theory behind that. Um, but we did have issues with our underwater pacing lights just because of the, you know, when you put anything electrical into water, it's, um, it's tricky. Yeah. So the study following on from that, the idea was initially to use the lights to see if we could do some sort of training intervention with the lights. So if we could 
train them with them and then gradually take them away and see if their pacing actually got better with them. But because we kind of had issues with them, we did the similar thing. We did a training intervention and we got them to do um, in a very big session pacing efforts different ways. So like looking for even splits, negative splits, um, and got them to do it repeated over five weeks to see if they got better at it. Mm. Um, which, you know, we were very limited by the time in the season we were trying to recruit squads for that. So we ended up getting one squad to do it, but it was like probably two months before World Championship trials here. Mm. So we didn't, you know, we couldn't really change their training that much um, because they were all prepping towards that. So we had them for like one session a week where we could do something with them, which, you know, really isn't enough to see a change. You really need two or three sessions a week for five, six, seven, eight weeks rather than one session a week for five weeks. So we didn't find too much um, in that. But I guess it was a kind of an initial pilot study to see if there was something in it. And I think there definitely is. But I'd like to repeat that again with a bit more, you know, with a squad where we can actually influence what they're doing a bit more mm-hmm. in more sessions. Um, and then I guess the, the studies before that, I often um, did a lot of research around using um, splits from competitions. So, and looking at how people actually pace in competitions. There's a lot of research out there saying what pacing profile swimmers typically display in a competition. Say for a 200 freestyle, we know what kind of um, shape profile that we see. Um, but there's not much specifics around that. Like it's useful to know what kind of shape profile we see, but it's not that useful to coaches um, because it's kind of obvious. So I wanted to delve into it a bit more. And that's where we started using like a percentage of race time spent in each lap to see, um, to give coaches, I guess, more specific advice around like, especially related to the start lap in a 200 freestyle. So the first 50, how quick should they be going out? Because we found if they went out too quick, their performance was much worse as a result, which kind of mm-hmm. makes sense. You go out too quick, you use up too much energy early on. Right. You struggle on the back end of the race, which is coaches would probably know inherently, but we had really strong data to support that. So mm-hmm. we could then give coaches really um, specific like percentages. So you could work out, well, this is the time I want my swimmer to go overall this is the time he should probably be going around on the first lap. If he goes too much quicker than that, he's going to probably struggle. So, um, yeah, that was that one. And we kind of compared individual events to relays, which hasn't really been done before. Mm -hmm. So my thought was that swimmers, and we see it a lot, I think, with Australian swimmers in competition, um, but also swimmers from other countries where they pace differently in their, say, individual 200 freestyle. And then when they get to the relay 4x200, they pace it completely differently. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, why is that? Um, and we haven't quite figured out why yet, but my, my theory was that, you know, obviously in a relay, you're part of a team, there's a lot more pressure to perform. Um, you're trying to do well for your team. So you sort of chase the people next to you a bit more, mm-hmm. especially if you're, if you're say, fourth leg and you're stood on the block waiting, you can see exactly where your team is positioned. So say mm-hmm. you can see your team are pretty close to first place, but there may be a second behind. When you dive in, you know, they go super hard early on to try and catch up with that person rather than just actually swimming their own race, Mm -hmm. which means often they end up swimming an actual slower time overall rather than they stuck to their normal race plan in an individual event and just didn't get too excited by trying to chase down, you know, Michael Phelps or whoever in the lane next to them, then they probably potentially would have swum quicker. So that was an interesting, interesting finding in that one. Um, and then I guess the other studies I did like a coach interview and um, questionnaires with coaches and swimmers just to find out, I guess, what they knew about pacing. Cause 
we're trying to like educate coaches and give coaches information about pacing I think it's important first to know what they actually already know because there's no point telling them what they already know right and just to find out how much they yeah how they much they do know and how they program their training in relation to I guess teaching swimmers how to pace because there's not much research on how you actually develop pacing skills in many sports but especially not swimming um, so how do they actually go about that um, what do they do in training and how do they prescribe training sets and progress them throughout the season in their periodization to to get those I guess progressions that they want to see so when it comes time to race that that swimmer can actually nail their 200 say freestyle race plan in terms of hitting those splits that they want to hit mm-hmm. um yeah so that's that's pretty much all the studies i did in the phd so you know you're talking about like the uh, pacing shape or pacing profile just to clarify you're just basically talking about like say uh i don't know a race but say we want to go a minute Whatever the, the finish time is a minute. It's it's a fifty, which obviously is not terribly quick. But so anyway, so we want to go you know so down and back in a twenty five meter pool. So we have thirty second splits. So the shaping pro, the, the the shape or the profile of the pacing would be like the first half is twenty five seconds and the second half is thirty five. So if you graphed it, then you could see that like faster than the median time and then higher than the median time. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, pretty much. So I tend to use like a percentage of race time. So um, say they go a minute and you're looking at 25 seconds, 35 seconds. I work that out as a percentage. Obviously, the first half there is much quicker than the second half. So the the slope of the line would sort of go up. So the first half would be a lower percentage. So it's like 40%, 60%. Yeah. But yeah, okay. I was just trying to figure out how how you're representing that visually. Because there's obviously you could take that data and, and put it together different ways. Yeah, and then you know you're talking about uh, don't go out too hard because you're going to die off at the end of the race. And to me, that's like, well, duh. I mean, it's a pretty intuitive. I guess if you've been around, I'll say endurance sports for any period of time, like that's it's a mantra that everybody will say over and over and over again. Like, do not go out too hard for various reasons, but it pretty much never works. Um, yeah. So it's almost surprising to me that, especially because you're, you know, you're working with pretty high level athletes that like a coach wouldn't be like clicking off splits at some point and be like, you know, dial that, dial that first 50 back or dial that first 25 back and let's just see, you know, let's Mm -hmm. just see what happens. So I kind of wonder, um, how intuitive do you, which this isn't really a data question, I guess, but how, like how intuitive do you feel that those, those high level swimmers are with their pacing? So if you, if you just say, you know, like you said, the, the times at the lower end, the aerobic end could end up being faster, obviously, cause it's easier, you know, you don't have to work as hard, but could you say, Hey, I want you to go swim this split. That's well within their, um, you know, physical capability and, and, you know, how many people would be, like, right on the dot versus way off? That's what I mean in terms of, like, intuitiveness of that pacing. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And you, you find a big range, to be honest. Um, obviously, the elite guys are, tend to be pretty good at it um, compared to the younger guys, you know, can be way off the mark. Yeah. So a lot of the swimmers I work with, you, if you go, I want you to go this split for 50 right now, most of them can do it pretty close. Mm-hmm. But 
I guess when you're talking about, I always use a 200 freestyles example just because that's where I've done a lot of research, but mm. in that first lap, you're talking very small differences can have a big physiological impact. Right. So say their race plan is for them to go out in a 26-2 for the first 50 and they go out in a 25-8. It's only 0.4 of a second. So you'd be like, oh, that's pretty accurate, you know, compared to what they were meant to go. But that 0.4 of a second can have pretty big impact in terms yeah. of the energy expenditure required to go that extra point four quicker right um and then it comes back to i guess what they've trained for so if in training they've been training and they're going 26 2 26 2 or 26 3 26 4 and then all of a sudden in a race they go 25 8 their body is not prepared necessarily yeah. to cope with um you know the consequences of that um and the other really interesting thing about racing compared to training is that the taper has a big impact and it's mm. something um, I guess we don't know heaps about in, term, in swimming in terms of what effect the taper has on pacing, but we see it. I mean, I've seen it a lot anecdotally that when they're tapered, obviously they feel awesome. They feel super fresh and they feel raring to go. So they go out in that first lap much quicker than they should Yeah, because they feel good. It feels easier. Right. So right. pacing is a lot about perception of effort. Yeah. So in training, a 26.2 might feel like a 7 out of 10. When you're in full load, you go into taper and, and that 26.2 feels like a 5 out of 10 or a 6 out of 10. So you end up going like a 25.6 or something crazy and then because you feel good, but you haven't trained for that. Your body has isn't able to cope with that. So then later on in the race, you really suffer. Um, so, yeah, it can be quite small differences and it's hard to, I guess, to pace you know, super accurate, there's always going to be a range. If you want to go 26-2, you're going to have to have a range probably 26-1, 26-3. But yeah, I think in racing, the taper really plays a big impact on that. And obviously the psychological impact of being in a race. If someone else in the lane next to you is going out fast, faster than you, and you can see their feet or their hips or whatever, you instinctively probably want to catch up with them and you don't want to let them slip away. Mm -hmm. Whereas actually... Some swimmers, and it depends on your physiology as well. If you're a more um, aerobic or anaerobic dominant swimmer, it's going to impact you differently. Um, but if you try and chase that person and don't stick to your race plan, that can really hinder your performance as well. Because if you actually just stick to your race plan, which is obviously designed around your physiology to give you the best chance to swim your best race, although that guy's gone out super quick, he might just die off in the last 50 and you then might swim over him. So it's a case of also being confident in your race plan mm -hmm. and confident that you can execute it and that it's going to get you the quickest time and not worrying about what other people are doing. Cause you know, there are certain swimmers, you know, if you're in the lane next to a certain swimmer that they're going to go out hard, they're going to take the race out. You've got to be confident if that's not your race plan to stick to your plan and just go out a bit more conservatively. And we're not saying go out slow, like it's, you're not going to be, two, three seconds behind, you know, you're talking maybe half a second behind them or, mm. or whatever it might be just to keep in touch with them. And then in that last 50, you've got the extra energy to actually swim over the top of them, but they haven't got that extra energy. So yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a balance, but overall, most of the top guys are pretty good at pacing, especially like the distance swimmers. You can tell them to go 60 points, 60 points, 60 points for hundreds, and they will just nail it every single time. Mm -hmm. Whereas you get junior swimmers, and they'll be all over the place. And that's just a learning thing, right? It comes with experience. Yeah, that's, as you're talking about it, I'm like, a ghost of coaches past, like all the, you know, all the things I've heard over the last 20 years of <laughs> competitive racing, but 
don't go down hard, you know, do your own race, like all these things that you really have to like drill in your head. So then I was like, as you're talking, I'm, I, I'm thinking to myself, well, what's the difference? Like it's, it can't be that, you know, running has this magical culture that swimming doesn't have. There's so much crossover in terms of athletes that do both, especially at, you know, junior or high school level. And I, I think the biggest thing, at least from what I can guess is there's no way to verify in the middle of a race that you are or aren't on your race plan. Whereas like if I'm doing a 5k, I know I can check my watch or, or a coach can be there and say, Hey, you're right on. Hey, you're a little fast, like cool it, whatever it is. And, and give that feedback in that also plays into experience, right? Cause you get that immediate feedback but also that feedback for the long term when you're doing another race and you can think about, well, how does this feel compared to that one versus the swimmers? They don't really like the race is over. Then they can get their splits, but it's not the same kind of feedback as that immediate, you know, punch in the chest. I went out too hard. I hear my coach going, it's like, slow down, Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's gotta be, that's got to be the difference. Like at least I can think of is that they don't have that immediate feedback to, you know, adjust the game plan at game time. Yeah, no, I definitely agree hundred percent. And, you know, in training, like as a triathlete, you know, running and cycling, you're constantly looking at your watch to be like, what pace am I going at? Am yeah. I going too fast or am I on pace? And exactly like what you said, the swimmers don't have that reference. They're basically going off feel. Yeah. That's all they're going off. And also things like stroke rate, you know, they know roughly for a certain stroke rate they're going to be hitting ab- right. about this time. Um, but that changes daily as well with fatigue, you yeah. know, how fatigued they are. They could be feeling good one day and, you know, a 60 point could feel much harder one day than, than the next. So yeah. going off feel is limited as well in that you, you don't have, yeah, that feedback in terms of time until you finish. And then the coach goes, oh, you've gone way too slow or way too fast. And they're like, oh, cool. Well, can't change it now but you can change it for the next rep but it's kind of too late that that first rep is lost yeah. and exactly the same in a race like you you can hear your coach shouting on the sideline and sometimes the coaches will try and do this to sort of speed you up but they're pretty much always doing that yeah so because they want you to go faster right so you can't really tell whether you're on on pace or not um so yeah it's very much a field-based thing and you get to the end and you hope you've gone a good time. Um, and often like in one of my studies, we ask swimmers at the end of each rep to guess what time they went. Mm. And some of their guesses are just way off. And this is aerobic paces. So it's not race yeah. pace, but, yeah. um, which is obviously more difficult. There's a bigger range, but yeah, they could be absolutely miles off what time they think they went, you know, you're talking 10 plus seconds for aerobic paces and they're like, Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, that can have a big impact in training in terms of what zone they're training in, but then obviously yeah. racing it has a massive impact. Um, and I know in training, some of the swimmers, they try to look at the pace clock as they breathe. They'll like look at the clock on the yeah. wall, um, which is, I guess, an indicator. If you're doing longer efforts, that can be useful. You can sort of see roughly where you're at. Right. Uh, but racing, there's none of that feedback. And that's where things like the underwater pacing lights are super useful. And I think that's why the pacing was so accurate with them, because they have that immediate feedback. So the mm-hmm. light is moving up the pool. They're keeping their head in line with the light. They can mm-hmm. see exactly where they are, whether they're on pace or not. And if they're sat behind the light, they know they need to speed up a bit. Yeah. If they're going too fast, they slow down. So um, 
yeah that immediate feedback is really difficult to get in swimming and that's where yeah if we can get a system of underwater lights that works reliably in the pool um, that will have a really big impact in training and obviously you can't use them in racing but if you can train them to feel that perception of effort better it's also quite difficult in swimming because like the feel of the water changes daily also based on like your techniques if your techniques a bit off you feel for the ward isn't quite the same and so there's so many different factors whereas yeah running like the air I know the air density and things can change if your altitude and temperature also yeah. changes but yeah that kind of technique isn't such a huge part whereas swimming obviously technique is massive so there's so many variables that can change on a daily basis I think. That's what I was thinking about my like my own experience between the two and, and not that I'm a great swimmer I'm uh, a decent for an amateur triathlete, which isn't saying much um, <laughs> as far as swimming it goes. But it's like I historically I'm a very good pacer running. Like when I was just mm-hmm. running, um, you know, you could give me a time and I'll be within a tenth of a second of it. We're talking quarters to miles, you know, whatever yeah. it is. So very accurate. And, you know, you can feel those little differences so much easier. And I feel like, so it's like, I I say that just to have a basis of, okay, I have the ability to pace. But then I get in the pool, and especially as you're going harder, it's like those tenths of a second at the top end of your scale, they, I refer to it as gears, like I'm always on a bike, like we're clicking up gears. As you're trying to go one second faster, it feels like, here's five gears, not one gear, you know, yeah. for, say, just for a hundred. It, it's not so that that rate perceived exertion is that range gets stretched out so far. And then, as you mentioned, like if technique is different, like I have heavy legs and poor lower abs, so they like to sink down. So <laughs> if I'm having a good day, like I'm engaging my abs, like I'm supposed to like get my legs up then like my RPE may be lower, but then I could be going faster because I've got my legs out of the way and more hydrodynamic. Yeah. It's all those variables. And do you know, is it in the water when you're going faster, is it logarithmically harder? Like it's like, like an exponential curve, basically as you're trying to put more effort in, it's not, it's not linear effort to speed. Like it gets progressively harder. Yeah, so there's actually, so on land, it's a um, linear relationship, but in the pool, it's a cubic relationship between force and velocity. So okay. the, yeah, so as soon as you increase speed, even just a small amount, the energy expenditure required to increase that speed is much higher than, I guess, the increase in speed right. itself. So you're having to put in a lot more energy to yeah, create a small change in speed. And that's a lot to do with, you know, fluid dynamics and the, the drag. You have to overcome the drag, so it requires yeah. a lot more energy. And that's where we're talking about that, that small differences on the first lap, even, you know, 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5 of a second can have a massive impact. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think about the, though I think the place that we encounter that on land is with cycling. When you get going, you know, 23, 24, 25 miles an hour, and then it's like, if you want to go from 25 to 26 miles an hour, like you need a lot more watts to get that extra mile an hour versus going from like 12 to 13. You don't need a whole mm. lot extra because you you start hitting that threshold where you just can't push the air that much more. Mm. But so that so 
when you go between running and swimming, it just seems so vastly different because you, as a runner, you just don't encounter the kind of speeds that air resistance is going to create so much tension mm. that you hit that wall and have to overcome all of that drag. So I, I yeah. think it's I think it's hard to relate that to people who haven't really spent time in the pool or haven't hit those like high ends on the bike. Yeah. Um, just yeah. Like, we can obviously explain it and say, okay, yeah, it's it's like this, but to experience it is different because you can go. Yeah, you've been in the pool now, even if you know you're not as high level as the like the people you're studying. Yeah. You know, it's like. You could be going what you think is like zone four, and then you hit what would feel like zone six, and you're barely any faster. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, yeah. I put in so much more effort for that and got almost nothing out of it. Yeah, that happens to me all the time. Like, I'll go like a max 100 in the pool, and then I'll go one that feels like seven or eight out of 10, and it's literally like three seconds difference max. Like, yeah. And that's, that's partly because I'm not very good swimmer and I can't go very fast, but it's also like putting so much more effort to get yeah. like this tiny change in time. It's um, yeah, it's a bit depressing. And also the difference in swimming and running is the tactics are so different. So like if you're talking about running races on the track and even marathons and things like drafting is a big thing, positioning, especially on the track in terms of getting yourself into a good position. Yeah. Whereas swimming, you have your own lane. You don't have to worry really about what everyone else is doing. You can yeah. sort of see what they're doing, but you can't, if you only breathe to one side, though most swimmers will breathe bilaterally, you can't necessarily see what everyone is doing. And, yeah. you know, if you're in an outside lane, you certainly can't see what the guy in right. lane four is doing. So you have to kind of just follow your own race, whereas running, maybe not in triathlon so much, but a little bit, um, for the top guys, you can sort of base your pacing off of what other people are doing in terms of like just getting yourself in a good position yeah. which could be good or bad it could be slower than what you're capable of or it could be faster in which case that's going to hurt you too but yeah um yeah such different um different event dynamics i suppose with swimming being yeah. so like you constrained to your lane you can just literally follow your race plan and don't don't worry about what one else is doing and that's why i try and get coaches to um kind of do's and, and, and swimmers just to focus on their own race rather than worrying about what the guy in the lane next to you is doing but it's easier said than done when you you know in your olympic final and you see the guy in the lane next to you like a, a body length above you and you kind of panic and you yeah and that's how it comes back to confidence in your own in your own yeah. ability in race yeah I, I have two thoughts so I, i'll see like a split here but you know i've talked to um talked to a number of pro triathletes and the funny thing is that those guys, and I think the women do it too. Uh, I've spoken to more uh, male pros, but I, it, they do actually, like when they get out on the bike or on the swim, they race. Like they don't say, hey, like I know I can hit 315 watts for a 70.3. That's what I'm going to do. I don't care what anybody else is doing. They actually race and it's like almost, they don't even care to some degree what they're doing. It's like... I, I never understood that because it's the race is so long. Yeah. Like why, if, if like Sebastian Keenly is known as being a very strong cyclist. So if you know, he is crushing the bike leg, why are you trying to race with him? If you know, <laughs> you don't have the same fitness as him Yeah. when you know, Hey, like I've got much better running legs. I can catch him on the run. Like it just, it boggles my mind that like the best guys in the sport still do it. I don't, I just, I don't, I don't get it. It doesn't make no yeah. sense to me. And maybe 
because I did not make it to the pro levels like I wanted. Maybe there's something I just simply don't understand, and I'm being like a country bumpkin who doesn't get it. <laughs> but, but it does. It happen. doesn't make. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I don't. It, I just, and it's, it's the same in any sport, I suppose. I think, especially like for something like that, where it's you know so many hours. Why would you? Yeah. Why would you? go faster than you're capable of and then you're going to be so tired when you come to the run yeah and it's just it, yeah it doesn't make much sense and I think you're yeah, swimming you see it and I think you see it in all sports and even like on track running you know the 5k on the track like yeah. people try and keep up with the front pack and you're like if you know they're going too fast why don't you just hang back yeah hang back and then like gradually work your way up the field and that's what like someone like Mo Farah does that really well he yeah. just holds back hangs back and just sits on the back of the pack and then as each lap goes, you know, he might just move up one position and by the last lap, he's right on the front coming around the, the last bend and boom, he's there. And everyone's like, where does he come from? Yeah. Um, whereas uh, like that guy you're saying on the bike, why would you chase the guy who's awesome on the bike? Yes, yes, you'll be behind him when you start the run, but you'd be better off just being behind and then like building through your run yeah. and finishing strong rather than finishing like on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's always this psychological game that's being played, right? Because it's, you know, they're all, when we're talking about the top of the top, for the most part, you know, uh, physical outliers aside, like Michael Phelps, what are you going to do? But, but <laughs> yeah. aside from that, you're pretty much talking, everybody's right in there, you know? So it's like, if you stick with your own game plan, you know you're in the mix you're giving your own, like you said earlier, you're with for your own physiological setup, whatever your strengths and weaknesses are, you have a grace plan for your body. You're giving yourself the best chance you have to make it. So it just it boggles my mind that the like the best people, men and women, do this. I just I I just feel like I want to shake them sometimes when I hear about it because I'm just mm. like. I like psychological discipline. Like that's the other part of all of these sports is yeah. keeping control of yourself. And and that's when you talk to the winners, that's usually what happens, right? They're like every once in a while they end up in a scramble, but it's like I went out with my game plan. This went a little off, but I adjusted. And but for the most part, it's like I stayed within the levels that I anticipated and executed the plan that we had been putting together for the last year or whatever it was so yeah. just yeah maybe you can get um, through them as an outsider <laughs> yeah and it's like i say it boggles me as well in suing that we still see people going out super hard and just holding on for dear life at the end yeah. and you think that's not a race plan that will work for many people and yeah. granted there are some people that i know swimmers here that have a similar race plan like they go out hard and they just hold on as best yeah. they can i know they've swum pbs and won olympic medals doing that yeah. So then it's hard to argue where well, you should change your race plan. Right. I get that because it's been successful. But my argument most of the time would be, well, from an energy expenditure perspective, it's much more efficient to maybe just try it this way and see what happens. And, yeah. you know, some swimmers just doesn't suit their psychology. Like they can't cope with like psychologically with being behind. They want to yeah. be out in front. They just have to be out in front. Um, and that's fine. And some of their physiology suits certain, you know, race profiles. But, you know, in a 100 meter race, you might be okay to just go out as hard as you can and hold on because it's short. Right. Although still, I would say there's an element of pacing even in, say, a 1500 because, you know, you can still go out too hard and 
but when it gets to you know especially like 200 and above it's a very dangerous strategy I think mm. for many swimmers I mean some of the top ones like you're talking about the freaks like Michael Phelps he can get away with swimming whatever way he likes to be honest because he's so just quicker than everyone else yeah he can do what do whatever and we have some swimmers like that here it's like oh do whatever you want because um it works for you and that's fine and that's what they've done their whole careers so you know some of them you don't don't want to change but it's not a strategy for like the youngest swimmers coming through that i would recommend to anybody yeah um I'm definitely trying to recommend that yeah conservative approach and then coaches always come back and they go oh well i don't want them to go out slow and i'm like i don't mean go out slow i mean conservative like by that, I mean just holding back a bit of energy for the yeah. second half of the race so you can actually finish strong. It's not about, I want you to go out slow and be two seconds behind, you know, everyone else yeah. on the first lap. So it's just, yeah, it's trying to get that across to coaches. And I think they've responded really well here. And hopefully, yeah, we'll see a bit of a shift in tactics, I suppose. But um, and we've definitely seen that in, in events like the 200 breaststroke, for example, like at Worlds last year. That's an event that typically you would swim like what I call a positive pacing profile. So you're gradually getting slower. And that's just the yeah. nature of breaststroke because it's just right. such a weird, weird stroke. Um, but now we're seeing um, the Europeans, they're, they're going out really, really conservative. So, you know, on this, at the 100 meter mark, they're way behind. But then the, the second 100 meters, they come back like an absolute train and they just swim over everyone. And that's something you definitely haven't seen in the 200 breaststroke. Um, it's such a, I guess, unique strategy, but it's worked. And, you know, we've seen, um, Anton Chopkov break the world record doing that kind of strategy. Mm-hmm. And so it makes you think, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe that's something to think about for strokes like that. If we go out really conservatively, we can come back super strong. Um, and breaststrokes are unique, you know, very unique in that way. And that freestyle is completely different um, strategy. But yeah, it's, um, I think it's opened people's eyes a bit. The coach has been like, oh, that's a different way to swim it. And he's swam like a 206. So maybe that's something we should, uh, we should look into. Yeah. Maybe you can reframe it somehow where it's like, you know, so they turn about the swimmers that want to just go out hard and just hang on for dear life. It's like, okay, maybe you swam a personal best doing that. But what if I told you, you could probably swim another personal best, not doing that. Like you're limiting yourself by doing it. So it's like, can you try it? Have you watched, this, this is something we watched, I don't know, a, a thousand times as U.S. Uh, cross-country runners. There's a movie about Steve Prefontaine just called Pre. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it or do you know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about, but I've not seen it, but I really okay. want to. So it's Steve Prefontaine and, and uh, when Bill Bowerman gets a hold of him in Oregon. And, you know, I don't know to what accuracy – the whole movie's depicted obviously it's a movie and not the actual occurrence um but prefontaine was known for running out front and that was his style he wanted to be wire to wire in the front and his coach basically had to break him of that psychology because he was limiting his own potential he was like you know there's a scene where he wins a race and he's like his coach is like you know, shaking his head. And he's like, I won. Like, what's your problem? And he's like, yeah, but you could have been faster if you'd not gone out like you did and you'd sat back. And it's like, he had to almost break that pride down of being like, cause I think in the movie Prefontaine, the character 
at least describes that the strategy of basically sitting back like like Mo and, and conserving your energy and working way up. He's like, that's a chicken shit strategy. I think that's like I think that's a quote. Yeah. Um. It, it, so it's like it's that mentality of like I'm gonna be in the front the whole time. That's just what it is. It's you know cowardly to do anything else. It's like I guess, but don't you want to be the best you can be and figure out what like shifting the conversation from you have to be out front to be the best to you can be the best, but you have to be the smartest to be the best. Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. And like in running like that, I get why some runners probably wouldn't be motivated to do that because well, as long as they win, it doesn't matter what time they went. Right. Like you can get, you can get races at the Olympics world championships that are really slow, but who cares what the time was because I won gold. So, yeah. you know, like, oh, fair enough. And swimming is the same in that it's still the pers- first person that touches the wall who wins. Right. But it's often more, I guess, because you can't see what people are doing. You're still going for a time. You're still, you know, your target is still based on a time. And you hope that that time will get you a medal. Right. And then, you know, in the last 50, you can kind of see where people are and you can just give everything you've got there. But, yeah, if you say you're going to swim a quicker time, if you swim, maybe try a different strategy and that quicker time is likely to get you a different color medal, then that could be the motivation. I guess it's just getting swimmers who, or any athlete who've been doing it for years and years and years, a certain way to be open to changing or at least trying that. You're not, you're not going to say, oh, it's an Olympic final. I want you to swim it in a completely different way to what you've yeah, ever done before. Right. <laughs> like that would just be crazy. So you're talking about, you know, like state meets here and little meets here and there where you just try something else and just see what happens. Um, and I guess that's the kind of just trial and error type thing where some coaches are playing around with that. Like, let's just try and go out like this and see what happens on the back end. Um, but, yeah, I guess it's harder for those experienced guys to want to change because they're like, well, I've swum this way. It's been successful. We you know I'm an Olympic champion swimming this way. So why would I change? Um, and I get that, but then you think, well, other people in the world are catching up to you. They're going to catch up to you eventually. So you've got to keep progressing as well. Um, and yeah, I still think most people that would go out with that mentality of being out in front and just holding on would theoretically swim quicker, swimming it more conservatively, but that also relies on them psychologically buying into that strategy. And so if they're not going to do that, then there's no point trying to change it. Right, right. You know, I wonder too, um, you mentioned earlier trying to figure out how to train people into pacing, how to, you know, get that, you know, train people to get that feeling. Uh, one of my habits has always been, not maybe not always, but for a very long time now, has been no matter what the workout is, I want to negative split the set. Even if it's minuscule amounts, if we're talking, you know, so say I'm on the track doing half mile repeats and I want to hit 245. Well, maybe the first one I hit 245.9 and the last one I hit 245.1. Still negative split, you yeah. know, but and I want it to be in that order. I don't want to pop all around. Yeah. I want it to be, <clears throat> if I decide to go faster, the next one will be equal or faster to the time that I set. And just as a habit, every single time I'm doing any kind of speed work, that is always the goal. 
And I don't know if that's the methodology you take and in, in, in that's where you work on really knowing those paces and where are those increases mm-hmm. and stuff. But I know that's, you know, that's been a, a major key f- for me at least knowing my paces and then also being confident in that, Hey, let's set back because I know I've done it over and over and over again, increase speed at the end and really have even stronger legs, you know, to, to kick it in at the end or when you're swimming to, you know, stroke faster or what, you know, whatever you need to do to make that adjustment to get in. So I wonder if that's, Mm. that's how you approach it with the swimmers is like, this is, this is the new plan, but I guess that that would come from coaching down. Yeah. And I mean, I love that idea and I see a lot of coaches do that here. Yeah. Um, The high level coaches will, you know, prescribe sets based on splits. So, they'll be looking, you know, certain points in the set, they might be looking for even splits, you know, say for breaststroke and butterfly, yeah. looking for even. Whereas for freestyle, yeah, you want in negative splits. And um, one of the things that came out of my coach interviews for my PhD was interesting in that a lot of the coaches, and I guess it's the same all across the world, when you're working in large squads, it's hard to get split times. Yeah. When you've got 30, 30 kids in the pool, how do you get split times to give them that feedback? Because... I've seen a lot of coaches, they'll prescribe negative splits, even splits, but they don't take the splits mm-hmm. because they physically can't because there's 30 kids in the pool. There's one of them. They've got four stopwatch. I mean, how can you possibly? Yeah. They're pretty good. I mean, swimming coaches are awesome with stopwatches, but I mean, there's only so much you can do. Yeah. And so that was one of the barriers they mentioned that, you know, they can't get things like split times and stroke rates because there's just too many kids in the pool. They don't have enough people on deck to help. Because yeah. obviously the top level guys tend to have much smaller squads. Yeah. They'll have assistant coach or a sports scientist on deck to help them with that. Yeah. And so it's much easier. But that's something I think we need to get um, better at with the younger kids coming through because that is the way they learn how to pace. If you yeah. tell them to even split it but you don't give them the split time feedback, how are they meant to know whether they did or they didn't even right. split? Right. So, But it is a challenge for them and I totally get that. And so that's where, you know, there's things you can do to work around that. So you know, getting split times for a certain number of kids on this effort and on the next effort, I'll get the next wave of swimmers, their splits or whatever, or you set up your set. So, you know, obviously most coaches will have their priority swimmers and you, you focus on them, but then it's the kids that get kind of missed out. They never learn how to pace because they don't get that feedback. Right. Um, It's like they could be getting better too. You never know like how they're going to progress as they get older. And yeah, definitely. But, um, the high level coaches that, you know, we work with do do a lot of that negative split stuff um, and it works really well because we you know we have the capacity to get the split times and so yeah. and most of the swimmers I work with they're really good at that and you know the end of a tough set they've done a really big set with like pace work and at the end you want them to go I don't know a hundred negative split and it has to be a negative split um, and they're all just really good at nailing that and so yeah. they have a good awareness but yeah, is that ability to be able to, I guess, provide that feedback is is part of the challenge. You know, as we're talking about it, funny enough, I you turn so we were talking about the um, the pacing lights, and when I was in college, I was like that same idea. I don't know whether it existed yet, but I was like, that's what I I was dreaming of a company, and I was like, that's what I should do is set up pacing lights on the track because I would do sets by myself. And I'm like, that's. I, you know, thinking about how do you teach people how to pace? And I was like, if you had just a, a loop around the track and you had a light for a rabbit, you yeah. could set up that. And that there are companies now, actually a local company to me that, that builds those now. Mm. So thinking about your pacing problem, 
I'll say it so that it, it can put it out to the universe and somebody can can build it because I am not an electron, electronic engineer. <laughs> um, if you had something like a chip timing system, like in running, set up at each end of the pool, and then you had a chip on the kids, then you could theoretically, if it's accurate, automatically be getting split times as they're coming up and down the pool without having to manually hit that stopwatch. And then yeah. you'd have start time. You know, if you've got five kids in a lane, you, you know, one starts off the wall, you know, timer starts. Timer doesn't start for everybody else because they haven't left yet. That's the big software problem to work out. But yeah. theoretically, I'm thinking that's probably the easiest way to get that many kids is to have a chip system. So then it's it's automatically collecting that data. Yeah, definitely. And the technology, I guess, in swimming is definitely getting better. Like there's things like Tritonware, which is the little device that sits in your cap mm-hmm. that will get split times. Yeah. Um, you know, and you can you can connect an iPad to a big TV and you can have everyone's split times coming up yeah. as they come in. Um, so that kind of does a similar thing. And there's, yeah, there's various bits of technology out there trying to do, I guess, that kind of thing. Um, but I guess the challenge always comes back to cost. Yes. And I, I know for a lot of the coaches, like, yeah, okay, the high-performance programs can afford to buy try and wear units and pay the subscription fee. But, you know, the small clubs that might have some really good swimmers in, you know, they can't afford those thousands of dollars to get those. Yeah. And then, you know, there's some things where the coaches will ask the kids to buy something. You know, like recently we've been using, you know, the polar heart rate monitors, like, and the kids can buy them themselves. They're only 130 bucks. There's no subscription. It's pretty easy. But getting them to buy their own try and wear or whatever it might be that's however much money. Yeah is a challenge um so yeah it's the, the programs with money can can do it and the ones without sort of end up still struggling with with the old stopwatches so yeah, yeah it's tricky if someone could make something that was a bit more affordable as opposed to those programs but it's yeah. hard because it's it's pretty like you say it's, it's simple technology but it's also probably a bit complex and again i'm not a, an engineer either i don't really know anything right. about that but it's um Simple but complex, if that makes any sort of sense. Right. Like what you're trying to do is not particularly difficult, like the the objective, but the execution and making it accurate is the challenge. Yes. And accuracy is, you know, for like youth programs, probably if it's, you know, a bit out is not a huge issue, but you still want it to be accurate. But, and that's one thing we always, with new technology that we try and use is that we're always trying to validate it or check the reliability of it because if it's not reliable and valid then um you know there's not much point us using it especially when you're paying thousands of dollars for something and you know it's not very reliable and so you're like well okay we'll just use stopwatches because at least that's reliable yeah um, and it's cheaper so yeah all right, Katie, as we're kind of running short on time, I'm asking everybody this year um, the same question because it kind of goes across the board for everyone. Um, so I'm curious on your opinion, what you think the purpose of sport is. Oh, that's a tough question. The purpose of sport? I don't know. I can't imagine life without sport. You know, like I guess most people you speak to, their whole life revolves around sport. And so for me... The purpose of my life is sport, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. if sport wasn't around, like, I don't know what my purpose in, in life would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's just, like, the ability of sport to bring people together um, and, like, connect people. Like, the amount of people I've met through sport 
for me is is amazing and like I've got contacts all over the world just from you know being away on training camps and um yeah competitions and just meeting different people so yeah does that even answer the question I'm not sure no absolutely (laughs) everybody has a different answer and that's why I love the question um because sport affects everybody so differently yet as you said Mm. it's kind of this like I don't want to quite say universal but it's this thing that runs you know, a, a thread between all of our lives and connects us in ways that we don't always know immediately, but we come together to celebrate and watch and participate and, and all these kind of things. Yet it's also different for each one of us. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. Um, Katie, is there any place people can keep up with you, see your research, any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, probably um, mostly on Twitter or my um, ResearchGate profile or LinkedIn as well. Yeah. Okay. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, I think it's just Katie McGibbon. Pretty basic. Not going to okay. anything fancy there. <laughs> At Katie That'll McGibbon. Work. That'll work. Thanks for uh, hanging out with me today, Katie. Thanks, Jesse.